Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Dave Bubeck, Research Director at Corteva. He spent most of his career in the world of corn breeding and as such has had a ringside seat in both the consolidation among seed and plant breeding companies during the last 20 to 30 years, which created some of the world's giant agricultural companies, and in watching new technologies be applied to possibly the most well-researched crop in human history. We talk about this and also his role this year as president of the National Association of Plant Breeders and the myriad ways in which collaboration across species when it comes to plant breeding brings benefit to all. I hope you enjoy it. So perhaps just to get us started, Dave, you could just tell me a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up or how you came to be interested in plants. Well, I grew up on a farm in in Iowa, and my grandfather had actually relocated from their family farm in Illinois We were a very diverse farm Uh, in the 60s and early 70s. We had numerous kinds of livestock. We had poultry, we had sheep, we had a cow-calf, black Angus herd, we had horses, we had hogs, crops included oats, alfalfa, corn, soybeans. Of course, we went to the grocery store for more diversity, but, you know, we we raised a lot of what we, we ate on the farm. So that that diversity of agriculture really watched that through my early years of uh, growing up through the 1970s and watched that diversity drop out of Midwestern U.S. agriculture. My love for plants really started at a very early age. And I would say the livestock side of the business also drove me closer to plants because Plants didn't talk back, <laughs> and, and certainly hogs did. So ultimately, it was an interest in general biology and life. It sounds like you had a very solid agricultural foundation. What was it that sent you specifically down the plant breeding path? What really changed it for me, I was at Iowa State, and that summer I stayed in Ames, Iowa, and worked on the soybean breeding project. And that's where everything really coalesced for me. My interest in plants, my love for biology, and the connection with how you could bring that back to the farm through products developed through breeding and genetics, that really intrigued me. So you did a degree in agronomy at Iowa State and then a master's in plant breeding and cytogenetics. And then you left Iowa, notably one of the biggest or maybe the biggest state for corn growing in the U.S., to pursue a PhD at North Carolina State University. Had you had enough of corn at that point? You know, I I really did want to work on corn. Corn as a model breeding system, the diversity of of the genetics across the species, um, the the history of it being developed from wild land races and wild relatives of things like Teosinte. You know, it was very fascinating how corn was domesticated but the diversity in corn across the 250 plus races was was really fascinating. And uh, I actually just worked on corn. So I went, I left Iowa where corn is, 
is uh, significant. Um, and I went all the way to North Carolina to state to study corn breeding. That was really instrumental to the fundamental view of, of genetics and how important it was to have diversity in genetics because we were actually trying to leverage tropical maize germplasm and it adapted to temperate regions in the United States. For our listeners who have not had the benefit of your decades of experience in the corn industry, could you, at high level, just talk a little bit more about the different categories of corn, just to lay a foundation? There's very large collections of tens of thousands of different um, accessions, let's say, that are stored in gene banks. And one that we have in the U.S. that's a very strong collection is the, is the USDA has a national plant germplasm system where these collections are stored. And within that diversity, some very specific, let's say, market class opportunities have been leveraged. Corn is grown on the most hectares in the United States and around the world as dent corn largely and significantly used as livestock feed. To a much, much lesser degree, you have human consumption of different corn and corn products. Corn is often gets a bad name from its domestication and use in high fructose corn syrup. That might be one of its more negative recognitions that it gets. Most dent corn is known for its yellow endosperm, whereas white corn is traditionally used in grits. But you can also use yellow corn for grits as well. Literally tastes the same. It's more of a color preference. There, there are also other market classes in dent corn, like silage corn, generally, you know, for, for livestock feed. Then there are specialties within silage uh, corn that are, that are known as uh, higher digestibility, known to be higher digestibility in, in cattle feed. So that's the dent corn world. That's the biggest one in terms of total acres. And then people often think of sweet corn first. In the United States in particular, sweet corn is, is a huge market in terms of the fresh market sweet corn business. Um, and then popcorn, which I've already mentioned, popcorn is just uh, totally non-dent. It, uh, it has all hard endosperm. And when you heat it up, it basically explodes into a popcorn. So it's very flinty endosperm with no soft starch in it or very, very little soft starch in it. So those are the major classes, I think, and uh, very much leveraged as market classes of, of corn. That's great. Thank you. So you finished your PhD and took a job at Northrop King. But before too long, you were heading back to Iowa to join Pioneer. So how did that come about? I got a, I got a call from a recruiter, actually, for a position with Pioneer. And it was to breed corn in Johnston, Iowa, which was the headquarters for Pioneer. Growing up on the farm, we were we were not exclusively Pioneer customers, but we we grew a lot of Pioneer products. It was the dominant brand on our farm when I grew up, and so was always intrigued by the company, the the uh, long look prescription of the company, just how they really viewed that they were in this as a partnership with farmers, and that it was entirely about how do we develop better products for our customers. And I gather you'd already made a connection with some corn breeding legends at Pioneer at that point, hadn't you? Yes. So uh, one thing I did not mention when I was doing my PhD, I had a chance to come back to Iowa for about eight months and met folks like Dr. Bill Brown, who was actually the very first PhD that was ever hired by Pioneer and later became the president of the company. I had a very unique opportunity in 89 as well that summer to meet Raymond Baker, the first corn breeder that Henry Wallace hired when they started the corn company 95 years ago. 
So here, here I am crossing generations of corn breeders and working just in a summer with Pioneer and had the opportunity. Raymond Baker was already retired, but he loved being in the field and he was, you know, he lived a healthy life well into his, his elderly years. And he was, he was doing popcorn actually as a breeding project. And I think I may be the only one that's still active in the business that actually pollinated corn with Mr. Baker. Of course, listeners can't see you, but you know, it's, it's, you're not ancient. You haven't been around forever and ever and ever. <laughs> so, so, you know, and yet you've managed to span this enormous um, history of Pioneer, the 95 years that you talked about. And so I'm curious, has that given you a perspective on what's changed and what's stayed the same in corn breeding, maybe specifically, and perhaps the company more generally over those years? So going back to my um, decision to come to Pioneer with that background in history, it was obvious where I needed to go to have an opportunity to be a corn breeder right in the same exact backyard where Henry Wallace and Raymond Baker started. And so what, what stayed the same is I believe successful plant breeders have always needed to be in the field and have intimate knowledge of the species that they're working with. So corn or anything, field crops, vegetables, flowers, it's essential that you really have an intimate knowledge with the species that you're working with. You know, knowing what are what are the vulnerabilities of that crop from a disease perspective, from an agronomic perspective, from a nutrition perspective, from a food value perspective, what, whatever that might be, know your crop intimately, know what it's used for today and know what it could be used for in the future. And I think those things are essential. Also knowing what is the range of genetic variation that exists. So many traits, many agronomic traits, many, many nutritional traits have uh, a normal bell-shaped curve in their distribution of values. You have these fringes of the tails, let's say, both on the weak side as well as on the strong side, whatever weak and strong is in terms of the performance of a given characteristic. And plant breeding is really ultimately all about seeking out transgressive segregation from what's used today. So how do, how do I reach beyond the average and I, and I go to exceptional performance that's on the edge of that where that genetic variation exists? And that's one thing that hasn't changed. Now, what we do to reach that transgressive segregation and performance for any characteristic, that is the part that has changed. Very fundamental to today's ability is the molecular genotyping that can be done, the understanding of genes and gene function and regulatory genes on a really fundamental level, and driving you know, this genomic era that we've lived through into a post-genomic one where that genomic knowledge is just put to the task in breeding and, and methods that we use to improve the performance of crop plants. That's been a big change. So the human genome was sequenced around the turn of the century, I think published, actively worked on in the 1990s. And all of the things that enabled that enabled a cost-effective way to do that, all the same things in plants. So tracking disease genes and identifying vulnerabilities in plants, identifying the genetic variation at the genomic level that occurs in, in a given plant species so that you can make improvement. And, and also so that you can identify weaknesses that you, you may have to find different mechanisms to improve the performance of those 
than just standard genetic variation. I want to talk a little about consolidation among companies in the agricultural seed and plant breeding world, because you experienced the company you were working for being acquired or merging several times in your career, most notably when Dow and DuPont merged. So could you talk to me a bit about that? So the merger from the very beginning was an intent to bring some components together and then to break them up into smaller pieces. Even from the very standpoint of the merger, when they were discussing it, the intention was to eventually fairly rapidly break them apart into three pieces. So the three pieces became actually, Dow became a name on its own once again, and DuPont became a name of its own once again. Well, the agricultural division, which they decided to split, contained both the seeds group as well as a crop protection group. They didn't have a name for that company. And so the agriculture part then was was left, let's say, without a name. Pioneer was big in the industry as a brand and as a trademark, as well as a company historically. However, it didn't really cover the name of the crop protection part of the business. So the merger and the spin then to what became Corteva, Corteva was selected as the as the name of the corporate entity of which the brand Pioneer continues to live as the flagship brand of the seed business. Both Dow and DuPont had these big chemical businesses running alongside their agricultural businesses. And many people may not have twigged. This has historically been a common occurrence in lots of large agricultural companies. So what's the connection? Why do they so often come together? Many of the crop protection chemicals go hand in hand with the agricultural system and the cropping systems that we're trying to deploy for our customers. And so if you think about what's in the bag, the the seed has a very integral need for for seed treatments. And so you have seed and all the genetics and all the resources that went into developing that genetic strain. You also have crop protection components that are in that bag that are covering most of the time fungicides, so soil-borne fungi that cause damage to seed, Um, You sometimes have a bit of insecticide targeted at insects that will destroy seed as they emerge and or young seedlings. And so that's a very big component of what goes in the bag. But then whether vegetable or field crops, as a grower, you have this need to manage the agronomic condition of the crop itself. And so what goes hand in hand with growing in an agricultural system growing the crop or all the crop protection chemicals that you need to put on that crop, including even at times fertilizers and and how do we do, you know, slow timed release of nitrogen. And so Corteva has a product that does slow release of nitrogen so that you have the nutrients at at the moment, at least at the moment when the plant really needs it. So building a system of total solutions for on the farm for what customers need in terms of products, whether it's out of a seed bag, or whether it's out of a jug of chemicals. And uh, I love the emphasis today on resilient agriculture and sustainability. We haven't talked about that yet, but organizations like Corteva are really looking hard at how do we build sustainable agricultural systems that minimize the environmental footprint, that pay attention to both soil health as well as water quality is, of course, a huge one. We're paying very close attention to the United Nations sustainability goals that have been established 
Corteva announced our sustainability goals in summer of 2020. We're making sure that, you know, whether it's on the crop protection and the chemistry side, building green chemistries that are natural products and being environmentally friendly and really just improving the environment and sustainability and really resilience of the agricultural system. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. Your current role, your title is a research director at Corteva AgriScience, and that's very broad. So, you know, tell me, what does that mean day to day for you? In my current job, we have a group that I call Global Breeding Services, and that really has three major components. One is all the efforts to do plant disease or, or plant pathology work. So this Global Breeding Services provides that connection with plant breeders to make sure that we're, we're leveraging genetic disease resistance in all the plants and the 10 or so species that we're breeding in in field crops. So that global plant pathology group is really asking the question, how do we devise plant disease solutions in the products that we deliver for our customers? Then the second component of my global breeding services work is um, we take it very seriously as as our germplasm is one of the most important assets that we own as a company. So I have a group where we we do all the characterization of our inbreds and our varieties in order that we can seek intellectual property protection for those varieties. And so I lead a group that does that. The third area that's a little harder to describe is the all of the things from a regulatory compliance and stewardship aspect that go along with being in a regulated plant breeding world. So I'll, I'm a contact point for working back with our regulatory and compliance and stewardship people. So as those things concern how we deploy our field research breeding programs, I'm the connection point for a lot of those things. And, and also the other external facing role that I have is really trying to drive how do we influence in a positive way the policy agencies driving future policy requirements for products and you know, paying careful attention to what are, what are the risks and safety aspects of those products and how do we communicate what those future needs are going to be to the policy agencies, even before they anticipate where that technology is is going and what kinds of products and characteristics those technologies will enable plants to carry. You must get this really interesting global overview as a consequence of that. You know, you you touched on global plant pathology and presumably that that's not just different parts of the world, but also how things are moving. The regulatory environment is different. So how does that global perspective influence the way you think about plant breeding and your role more generally? We are globally connected in so many ways. And our crop and agricultural species that we leverage for food, feed, fuel, fiber is is no different. And so we're globally connected. So what does that mean to the seed industry? From a disease and phytosanitary perspective, we have to make sure as a global company that we're moving healthy seed around the world in a safe and effective manner. From a plant breeding perspective, we leverage our germplasm globally. 
if we're breeding corn or soybeans in Brazil or sunflowers in Europe, we are probably leveraging some of that same genetics around the world. And the technologies that we apply to improving those varieties and hybrids have to be accounted for when we move things from one region of the world to another. And so let me just jump right into the deepest challenges of this with Europe being entirely non-GMO. I shouldn't say almost almost exclusively non-GMO. You know, we leverage a lot of the temperate latitudes across Europe and the temperate latitudes across the U.S. with the same genetic backgrounds. But in the U.S., we're, we're putting GMOs on there. So herbicide resistance traits, as well as insect control traits. And we can't use those in Europe, generally speaking, for either herbicide resistance or insect resistance. So we have to separate the breeding and technology pipeline. So we are essentially keeping the base genetics, the non-GMO, the non-traded genetics, as the fundamental basis for our improvement of, of the performance of those varieties or hybrids. We add later on top of that, before we commercialize the GMO traits that are required for the U.S. market today. And we leave them off of, of the Europe market. So it makes it more challenging to be part of a global environment. When you think about crops that are leveraged globally, and most of them are, what will the world do with genome editing? And will the world have the same approach that they had with GMOs? Or will we get to a more, I don't even want to say synchronous approval, a synchronous view of the acceptance of these technologies? Will the policy agencies around the world treat these products the same way with the same considerations? And number two, will the social acceptance around the world, will they align with the same attitude towards these technologies? In addition to your role at Corteva, you are the current president of the National Association of Plant Breeders, or NAPB. I'm also a member of NAPB, but we have listeners in over 50 countries. So perhaps you could tell me a little bit about the organization for the benefit of listeners who may not have heard of it before now. The National Association of Plant Breeders is an association that was started um, in the early 2000s. And they, they found a need in the, in the U.S. And in, in U.S. and Canada is primarily where the membership of NAPB is located. There wasn't one place where they could go as an association and talk about all the technologies that contribute to plant breeding, to cultivar improvement. And it's such a, you know, such an important area in terms of feeding and fueling the world. The National Association of Plant Breeders, our, our mission is to strengthen plant breeding, to promote food security, quality of life, and a sustainable future. Also, there was a recognition that the world really didn't know that much about what plant breeding actually delivered. In spite of people are on a diet every day that's like entirely impacted by the results of plant breeding and cultivar improvement. And so we really wanted to be able to communicate that plant breeding in itself is not a science. It's a collection of science and engineering and technology applications that help us to improve plant breeding. You talked about coming across all different species in, in or breeding in all different species in the NAPB. Do you have an example of the kind of, excuse the pun, cross-fertilization that goes on um, when that happens? There are some very common problems that plant breeders encounter. Let, let me just pick on one on, on phenotyping. So, you know, it's very important for plant breeders to have ways to measure those phenotypes that matter. 
and the way to measure and assay that. So when when plant breeders get together, you know, all plants have disease problems is another example. And plant breeders need means to have an assay for evaluating disease resistance levels or disease resistance to susceptibility. And so when we talk about the methods by which we're measuring, uh, we talk about what traits are important. We talk about how do we manage uh, disease resistance from a durability perspective and the cultivars that we release commercially. These are common things that cut across all species. Being a corn breeder in my background myself and in practice, there's a lot of intense resources that get applied to corn breeding and hybrid seed corn production. And some of the learnings that can happen from one species where it's, it's heavily invested can be applied to other species. So sharing that for any one crop and, and our, our annual meetings, our webinars are geared towards sharing these ideas across both the public and private sector. And breeders garnish many ideas from people that are breeding in other species. And, and so you get this really nice perspective across plant breeding as a whole um, through the through the NAPB. So that begs an interesting question about are there any themes or um, common issues that plant breeders around the US or indeed um, more widely than that are focusing on at the moment? I think every species that is dealt with has to deal with plant diseases. Some of those issues put some species in a more vulnerable situation from production than others. Uh, species like bananas, where the vast majority, I, I think it's at least 80% of the world's banana production is based off of one clonal variety. And that, that presents a real problem, if you, especially if you have a concentration of production of bananas in one certain area of the world and, and you have viruses that can, or other diseases that can cause a problem for that banana production. And so resolving problems like that and, and getting together to identify common technologies that may be able to help resolve those problems. And, and it's not always a crisis. Everything isn't necessarily a moment of, of risk of taking a given species of importance to human food consumption out of our diet completely. The point is we don't want it to be. The, the whole point is how we anticipate the environmental changes so that we have the diversity that we don't put ourselves in vulnerable situations. You know, we try to leverage technology so that we avoid those risks and vulnerabilities for the future. And the NAPB is a volunteer organization, isn't it? Yeah. So I, w I do want to emphasize that the, the NAPB is a collection of 450 plus members today. We are entirely a volunteer organization and dependent on you know, people with a passion and inspiration about plant breeding to come do some after hours work. Plant breeders already work hard. The work ethic of the plant breeder has never been in question, I don't think. They believe in their mission. They believe in, in the work that they're doing. We have a number of committees that are really important to make the organization work. So if you're in the world of plant breeding, you should you should join up. Absolutely. And actually, you don't have to be just based in the US, do you? You can be an international member, which is also worth mentioning. So thinking about, say, the next 10 years, um, where do you think as a community we should be putting our effort to maximize the impact of breeding in the next 10 years? We need to be very um, diligent to you know, continue to support public plant breeding so that we train the next generation of, of our workforce 
uh, both in the public and the private sectors and get accustomed to working around the periphery of what traditionally has been applied to plant breeding. So, you know, statistical rigor, good field plot techniques, getting uniform testing and trial sites, identifying ways of, of collecting uniform assays to, to phenotype all these traits that we need to phenotype for a given species. All these basic principles of running a good, solid breeding program, those need to be, remain in place. Where we need to get more rigorous, I think, is how do we drive genomic technologies of, of, of really driving us into a post-genomic world where we can leverage genes of small effect and are there, are there technologies and means to affect genes of very small quantitative incremental size and turn them into genes of large effect? So those are some of the questions that we, we will be addressing. And I think, you know, in the long term, it's not the current state of genome editing that's going to drive that change. We have to get the regulatory pathway acceptance of genome editing. If we don't get through the current uh, version, let's say 1.0 or 2.0 of genome editing, we'll never have an opportunity to see version 10.0 or 15.0. And at some point, we don't even call it genome editing. It's it's sort of a, a... how do we influence and affect the performance of many genes, dozens of genes, hundreds of genes at the same time? That's the rigor that could be applied in the future technologies. So we, we've got to figure out how to leverage and show value as plant breeders in the current phase of genome editing. But if we don't do that well, we'll never see future generations of, of, of genome uh, manipulation. What do you think um, are exciting opportunities for the future? My heart is is really close to watching new graduate students find their way on a career path. And I think it's an entirely inspiring point of time to leverage science and technology and engineering to improve cultivars. And there, there has never been a time at any point in my career nor before where we had so many different technologies right at our fingertips to utilize. There are, of course, economic considerations of which ones can we afford to use, which ones add the most value to cultivar improvement, but there's never been a better time to be in this business. I I never would have expected that in 2021, the consumers are paying so much attention to where their food comes from. Um, And so it's also very imperative in the future that, that we think about that social license that we need to firmly establish. We need to be able to communicate and advocate for all the technologies that improve what goes into our grocery stores and what comes out of our grocery stores. It, there's just a tremendous opportunity to leverage technology and a tremendous obligation to communicate to society the safety of the technologies and the history of the, the safe activities done in plant breeding and that have delivered so many wonderful cultivars to, uh, to the marketplace. And final question, if, um, if you think back over the, the portion of your career that has gone before today, is there anything with hindsight that you would have done differently or that might have set you on a different path? Had you done it differently? Yeah, I okay. When I when I was active in managing a plant breeding program directly myself, I didn't really have time to think about how important it was to communicate externally and advocate for the technologies we were using and what we did. I was naive in thinking that the world, like 
can you understand the value of improving the the output of grain on a on per unit land area you know and the and actually the sustainability that that contributes a really good example like if if nobody ever would have done corn breeding for the last 95 years as i said before you know pioneer hybrid international is 95 years old as a company but in that 95 years if you go back to 1926 and just in the in the 48 contiguous united states of america if if we were to produce the same amount of corn grain that we produce today in in 2021 what land would be required if we were producing at the same levels of output per acre that we did in 1926 and it would require that one in every four acres across the entire 48 states was grown in in row crop corn and instead we're, you know, we produce on about 90 plus or minus 90 million acres of, of corn in the United States. Wow. Instead of something like one in 20, one in 21 acres given over to corn today, that is remarkable. And, it, and it's not all just about the volume of production, that it's also about producing vegetables and, and, uh, and field crops that are more nutritious, that are safe, that have great reductions in mycotoxin production uh, from disease characteristics, disease traits. So all these things, I, I think where, where we need to do a better job in the future, and NAPB can help do this, I think the private sector as well as the public sector together need to join up in this, is how do we, how do we advocate and share the, the many and countless benefits that the world of plant breeding and that, and that that improvement that's done on cultivars can offer the world. So we need to do a better job of that. That's the one thing I think if we would have realized this 30 years ago, we'd probably be in a better place today. That's a really powerful example. So Dr. David Bubeck, Research Director at Corteva, President of the NAPB and powerful advocate for plant breeding. Thank you very much for sharing your plant breeding story with me today. Thank you, Hannah. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore Int. Until next time, stay well.